discipleship is a non-negotiable way of seeing that's intended to heal our view of salvation and our experience of salvation. Morgan and Sherry here, and we are about to dive into what is an absolutely vital, what I would name as reframing of what we think when we think about discipleship. There are these words that we use that, as Dallas says, they're so familiar, they become unfamiliar. And what I hope the fruit of this podcast is is that when you hear the word discipleship, that is equated with a bodily sense of secure attachment, union with God, that it is an inseparable reality from union and secure attachment. And it's an essential ongoing by day and by decade process. So anything you do, what you're practicing, The point, the practice is to expand, to mature, to deepen, secure attachment and union with God. Mutual indwelling, the scriptures call it, God in us and us in God in ever-increasing measure. So that's what we're going to chase after. I want to start with Jim Wilder and his introduction to renovated. He says in his introduction that Dallas Willard sat across from him in tears and he looked at the floor. Dallas had only weeks to live, but his tears were not for his own life. What I have learned in this last year, he told me, is more important than what I learned in the rest of my life, but I have no time to write about it. What Jim goes on to describe that Dallas was learning at the end of his life that was the most important thing that was more important than everything he learned the rest of his life was the idea, the embodied reality, the knowing of secure attachment with God, restoring and repairing strong emotional bonds that became the deepest reality of the human experience. And what I want to venture risking and this is a bold and daring risk, is if Dallas were with us for one more year and had room to articulate what he meant by that, he would come full circle to what his entire body of work was, and it was discipleship, the ongoing practice and process of being drawn ever deeper into the heart of God. I believe in humility, Dallas was assuming in that comment that secure attachment was actually the fruit, the purpose, the point of discipleship and salvation. I believe it was a doorway into this mystery that Paul says we are saved and being saved, that those were not separate realities for Paul. And when he says that I resolve to know nothing with you, but Christ crucified. At the heartbeat of that, he says, I I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except for Christ and him crucified. And therefore, he describes this way of being in the world where he said, I came 
with a weakness and a fear. I came with much trembling. That's what he was feeling. He was feeling weak. He was feeling fear. He was feeling trembling. But he says, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. In other words, he had tapped into a source of power, an ongoing reality that he was, his entire being, Paul, at the end of his life, was organized around God, sustained by him. He became a securely attached human being. And that came through being saved and the process of continued salvation through the practice of discipleship. And so today I wanna explore through the gospels of Will Smith, the gospels of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the gospels of others. What does it look like to recover discipleship and salvation as the epicenter of our secure attachment. Share, react to that. Where, what do you hear and where does your heart go with that introduction? Babe, first of all, I notice I'm smiling big. You've got like so many books everywhere around you and you're really cute. You guys, in the beginning, I was like the book girl and look at this man that I've ended up in love with. Um, Morg, a couple things come to mind. First of all, you know, I think... Um, you guys might know, and hi, friends, I love being with you, that I'm um, currently in a long, slow process of a master's in counseling from Denver Seminary. And so it's interesting to be back in a formal seminary context after having spent the last 20 years sort of studying these, you know, studying this theme, um, you know, like with D. Willie at the, at the head and obviously John and Stace and um, the subject of uh, the kingdom of God coming, what does it mean to come into the kingdom of God, to um, be saved, to be being saved? And um, so now to be in a formal environment is has been fascinating. And as an aside, I have been so encouraged by the conversations at Denver Seminary, and that's a whole other topic, but it's been awesome. Um, but I will say that there's this, this um, for my first semester, Morgan, I took a theological foundations of counseling, and we talked about worldview, and the president of the—we um, listened to a lecture by the president of Denver Seminary, and he was pointing out these main worldview questions. And they're drawn from N.T. Wright. They're drawn from—we actually watched Dallas Willard. Um, but one of the—you know, one of, one of his arguments for a main worldview question that every worldview is, is asking is, like, kind of what's the problem, mm -hmm. what's gone wrong, and what's the solution, quote-unquote, and that each—every um, worldview— from secular worldview to a theistic worldview has an is is offering some answer where whether it's conscious or not. And so this question of what's the problem, what's what's gone what's gone wrong and what's the solution. So we have this idea in our Christian faith of salvation. And I I I have, you know, only in the last years been become familiar with the actual theological term for that, which I think is beside the point, but it, it can be helpful to just for shorthand soteriology, the study of salvation. But the social question of how how I'm I'm fascinated to talk with different followers of Jesus and to muse about it of what does it mean to be saved? What is your definition of salvation or what is your not definition that's too intellectualized, but your your understanding of what salvation is. And we realize, I think it's fascinating, like a, a secular worldview has its own definition of salvation. So we could say maybe the secular worldview right now would be to become your truest self. That The problem is that you are, um, you are um, sort of 
um, not connected to your truest self or your truest self has been um, denied or oppressed. And so we have to reconnect with your true self. So when we're talking about salvation, I lo just love it for talking to any human. What does it mean to be saved? Um, what's the problem? What's the solution? So back to what you shared about Dallas and he had been proposing his whole, like you said, his body of work, renovation of the human heart, that um, coming to not only have faith in Jesus, but to have the faith of Jesus. I think about, um, you know, chapter, I think it's chapter three of Divine Conspiracy, a God-saturated, God-breathed world, and that Dallas pointing our attention to what was the faith of Jesus? And Jesus believed that his father was, the heaven was all around him. The kingdom and, you know, the unbodily power of the kingdom was all around him. Um, we could go on and on. So this idea of not just the faith in Jesus, but the faith of Jesus, which then come, leads us into Jesus's secure attachment with the Father that allowed him to stay um, human, truly human uh, in the image of God, in the midst even of um, intense provocation and to the point unto death of loving, even loving his enemies, picking up no spite or um, hatred, even as he was dying on the cross, that this um, salvation as our humanity being restored through um, re, um, an, a new and redeemed attachment with the Godhead, and then with each other, and then Jesus as our as our elder brother, to whom, by God's grace, we're being whose whose image and likeness we're being transformed. Looking at him, what was his faith? What did he believe about God? What did he believe about himself? What did he believe about the larger story? What did he believe was the problem in what had gone wrong in the human story and in creation, and what was the solution? I'm um, looking at his faith, but that back to. I think where it keys for me with Dallas is that we come to look and see that Jesus was a securely attached human, mm -hmm. and it was from his secure attachment. And we talked about this on a previous podcast: the what's the cart and what's the horse? That a secure attachment. I think we we were suggesting is the horse, and then the cart is the our the fruit of our um, behaviors and what becomes our spontaneous responses under even under duress, both to pleasure and to pain as we're transformed. So I just love it. And I'm really curious to see how you're going to tie in Will Smith and all the things. So uh, thanks for having me. It's so good, Cher. I think what I'm hearing, the underlying provocation, I would say, in what you just shared is we all have been discipled yes. by things yes. and by people. And we all have some view of salvation. It's working within us, and it is very important to excavate to find out what those things are. Who and what has discipled us to become the person we are today, and what is our view of salvation? And, and so I do want to turn to Will Smith. I've been, um, every Christmas, I immerse myself in a biography of some man simply for my joy. I love stories because every story of every man is ultimately um, centered around his masculine initiation in some form or another. Will's biography is fascinating. 
it was ghostwritten by J.R. Moringer, who is my favorite author to read of all times because of the way he uses language. Uh, he wrote The Tender Bar. So anything uh, that he writes, Andre Agassi's open, I go after it. So in Will's story, he introduces us to his mom and to his dad, and therefore the foundation of the person he found himself becoming, the, per the person he was discipled into being. And so I want you to hold this question, how have I been discipled? And what is salvation? As we just look for a moment at their stories. So Will calls his dad, Daddy-O. And he says in, in his book, Daddy-O was born and raised in the rough and rugged streets of Northern Philadelphia in the 40s. Daddy-O's father's grandfather owned a small fish market. He had to work from 4 a.m. until late at night every day. His grandmother was a nurse and often worked night shifts at a hospital. As a result, Daddy-O spent much of his childhood alone and unsupervised. The North Philly streets had a way of hardening you. You either crystallized into a mean motherfucker or the hood broke you. Daddy-O was smoking cigarettes by 11 and drinking by the age of 14. He goes on to describe that at 14, Daddy-O's parents were fearing where his life was headed. So they scraped together all the money they could and sent him to a boarding school. And that did not go well. At age 16, Daddy-O um, was done with school and ready to get home. So he decided to get himself kicked out. He started disrupting classes, ignoring the rules, antagonizing anyone in position of authority. When administrators tried to send him home, his grandparents refused to take him back. We paid for the full year, they said. You're getting paid to deal with him, so deal with him. Daddy-O was stuck. He goes on to describe that Daddy-O's a hustler, and so he bailed on his 17th birthday, snuck off campus, walked a dozen miles to a recruiting office, and he signed up for the United States military. And in the military, Daddy-O loved it. It was the military where he discovered the transformative power of order and discipline, two values that he came to worship as guardrails protecting him from the worst parts of himself. He says that later on in, in Daddy-O's life, after getting kicked out of the military, Daddy-O moved back to Philly and undaunted, he took a job in a steel mill. He was brilliant, and eventually he learned in hard times how to work on refrigerators and start a refrigeration company. Daddy-O saw the world in terms of commanders and missions, a military mindset that informed every aspect of life. In Daddy-O's mind, everything was life or death. He was preparing his children to thrive in a harsh world, a world that he saw as chaotic and brutal. The instilling of fear was and still is, to a large degree, a cultural parenting tactic in his black community. Fear is embraced as a survival necessity. So I just want to pause there and just look at Daddy-O's life and share when you hear that backstory and think of discipleship and salvation, I'm curious, just what stands out yeah. for you? Well, I, I really love that question, the, the question of, okay, so what, from Daddy-O's perspective, what did he come to be persuaded was the problem? Mm -hmm. And then what was the solution? The problem that I hear Daddy-O reckoning with was uh, uh, the perspective that the world was chaotic, unruly, predatorial, and that the solution was, I think, order and discipline and to instill fear as a survival instinct in order to um, survive this chaotic, aggressive world mm -hmm. and also to tame your own soul, it sounds to me. Yes. And so um, salvation is... From it sounds like what Daddy O found was salvation through order and discipline, and then through 
um, the instilling of fear in embracing a fear, in fact, as a um, to kind of create the horse, if you will, um, behind the cart of to pull the cart of survival. Yeah, that's that's beautifully articulated. And when you hear Will's story, what you find is this passionate, creative artist that wanted to take risks in the world of becoming a rapper and then going into TV and then going into movies. And it flew in the face of Daddio's discipleship and his means of salvation, right? And also, Will struggled all his life with feeling like he was a coward. At the core of his identity, the message is, I'm a coward. So if you feel like a coward and your father has that sort of way of um, identifying what are the problems and what are the solution, you can see how Will set up for a profoundly insecure attachment to his father. And then his mother, it's a very different story. We don't have time to go into all of it, but essentially there was deep violence, physical abuse. Um, Daddy-O, you know, attacked his wife so many times. And finally, one time when she was bleeding out of her ear from being hit, um, she finally left him. And her salvation was education. And so she was one of the most educated people, decorated with many degrees in her community, but she was always scraping by for ends meet to save the family because of abandoning this abusive environment. And so for her, the problem was you had to save yourself. You had to be your own resource. And the solution was be educated no matter what. So Will wants to launch this rap career and not go to college. And his mom feels like that is the greatest act of death that there could be. And so you have these two different models of discipleship. His mom and his dad were discipled by a culture and by a story, and they found salvation in very particular places. And so I wanna use those examples to try to excavate your story and say what and who has discipled you how do you describe the problem? And what does your life say to you as your efforts to create a solution apart from God? What is so important, Mark, to, to recognize and to be humble about is that, you know, um, in this idea that we have within us some degrees of multiplicity, there's parts of us, like this ongoing process of continuing to become aware of maybe... Um, definitions of the problem and commitments to the solution within ourselves, even as disciples of Jesus, that um, we're asking Holy Spirit to shine light on so that we can continue to, you know, recognize that maybe those um, strategies of survival worked for us in a time when that was, we were doing the best we could with what we had. But then as we encounter Jesus um, and him crucified over time again and again and again, that there's an invitation to exchange the ways that we had learned to survive um, and to receive, you know, to enter into the kingdom. So I, I just appreciate that it's, I, I mean, you've modeled this for me, but it is such an ongoing process. We just come with such humility to the conversation. And I would be curious for you, Morg, if anything comes to mind for yourself, like if you were to model for our listeners a reflection on who discipled you, what you determined was the problem, and what you determined was the solution. And maybe maybe whether that's in kind of the, the biggest sense or maybe in some subtler senses mm -hmm. that you're just getting visibility to now. 
Well, if I think back in my story to like the deepest roots of how I was formed, you know, I remember my mom made the comment, never make an enemy. And I realized I took on a view of reality of to be well is to not make an enemy. And I found myself holding back, not putting language to actually what I felt, what I saw, what incongruities that I saw in the world and also in myself. And so that was a deeply formative piece of be nice to everyone. And over time, so many parts within me became incongruous and I had no place to take them. And the other piece that I, I think back in the earliest days is I was always looking for men, a man to show me, teach me, train me in this thing called living. I think that's the best way I could say it. When I just look at the reach of seeing any older man in a sort of authority and most men in authority, they were very harming stories. They were not positive experiences with male teachers, with male priests, with male coaches. They were, they were actually damaging. And so there was this vulnerability of, I know I need someone to help find the way and these men aren't safe. So I have to figure it out on my own. And so it was pure initiation and self-initiation. And those were some of the things that I had to first begin to unravel and repair in my kind of consenting to discipleship. We came into Christ in an era, in an age in the world where there was this kind of um, uh, distilling of salvation as a prayer, right? It was a one-time act of pray the sinner's prayer and you are born again and you're transferred from one kingdom and you are in another kingdom and now go transfer other people. It was one of the giant flaws of the evangelical movement, which has been named cheap grace. And what I so appreciate about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who's one of the modern fathers in the faith, he really challenged this idea of cheap grace and tried to resurrect, to recover the reality of discipleship as secure attachment. That discipleship only happens through grace, is never removed from grace. There is no such thing as a prayer of salvation without a process of becoming saved. They are, they are two sides of a coin. They're the bow and the string of a violin, the lock and a key, right? They're two and yet they're one. And so I, I wanna actually go into Bonhoeffer's brilliant book, The Cost of Discipleship, and just share some thoughts that he, he, that he offers to frame this recovery. And friends, like this is what we're after, re, this recovery of discipleship is a non-negotiable way of seeing that's intended to heal our view of salvation and our experience of salvation. And so he begins with Mark chapter two, where Jesus passes Levi sitting 
at the place of toll, and he says to him, follow me. And Levi rose and followed him. And he's reflecting on that passage. What Bonhoeffer says is we are called to follow Christ. We're summoned to an exclusive attachment to a person. He says discipleship means adherence to Christ. And because Christ is the object of that adherence, it must take the form of discipleship. He says, how does this text inform us about the content of discipleship? God says, follow me, run along behind me. That is all. To follow in his steps is something which is void of all content. It gives us no intelligible program, a way of life, no goal or ideal to strive after. I hope, friends, you hear the disruption in this. He is called out and has to forsake his old life in order that he may exist in the strict sense of the word. The old life is left behind, completely surrendered. The disciple is dragged out of his relative security into a life of absolute insecurity. And then in parentheses, he says, that is in truth into the absolute security and safety of the fellowship of Jesus. He says he's dragged out from a life which is observable and calculable. And then in parentheses, he says, it is in fact quite incalculable into a life where everything is unobservable and fortuitous. And then in parentheses, he says, that is into one which is necessary and calculable. He says the disciples called out of a realm of finite parentheses, which is in truth infinite, into the realm of infinite possibilities, which he says in parentheses, which is one of a liberating reality. So friends, that's a lot of words. Let me just pause and say, in those words, the summary is Bonhoeffer says, we're called to follow a person, summoned to an exclusive attachment to this person. Discipleship is adherence to a person. We come out of what feels like security, but we actually are invited into security, which feels unsafe, but we're actually invited into safety. We're called out of a world that feels calculable, and yet we're called into the world that is calculable. One that feels finite, but in truth, we're called into the one that's liberating. There's much more in that book, but what I, what I want to name in Bonhoeffer's work that he recovers is there is no other life in masculine initiation than that of the disciple of Jesus Christ. We are intended to become like Paul, the disciple of Jesus Christ, that his finish line, it looked and felt something like this. I am now ready for anything, anywhere. That the narrative arc of his masculine initiation was coming into the kind of person, the kind of man, that whatever he has and wherever he is, he can make it through in the one who makes him who he is. A man that can say with a joyful sense of one who is being led, having become relaxed, unhurried, and at ease with himself and others because his entire being is organized around God and sustained by him. That's the point 
of our life. And that's the intended context. And, and the context in which we find ourselves is meant to be the sort of nuts and bolts and fodder to become this kind of person. My goodness, that is incredible. That quote from Bonhoeffer, one thing that strikes me that stood out to me in your quote was this word, adhere. And it drew my attention back to Paul's words in his first letter to the Corinthians in chapter 6, where he's discussing this mystery of sexuality and one fleshness. And then Paul goes on to say, um, first Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17, he talks about, but don't you know the one who has united herself or himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit? And I remember years ago that I was just really struck by that and meditating on it. And so I tracked down that word to be united with and um, in the Greek, and I am, you know, I'm a lay person, no Greek scholar here, but it, that word for to be, uni it's actually in, I guess, in the way that the syntax is, it's to, who unites herself. It has an active voice. It's not like just to be united, which is the way it got translated in my Bible, at least, but it, it seems to be actually she who unites herself. So consciously participates in uniting herself or uniting himself. That word is the same word that it, it connotates to glue, to glue together, to cement, to fasten together, to join or fasten firmly together, to join oneself to or cleave to. In other words, adhere. If we think about it, adhere is to be glued to, to literally. Mm -hmm. um, so that idea of adhering ourselves to the person of Jesus by the energetic power of the Holy Spirit that allows us to actually have embodied emotional experiences of being in union with God, which is embodied emotional experiences, corrective emotional experiences. And I don't mean emotion as in feelings. I mean as in a physical experience is, is part of being reattached. It, it can't merely be thinking about something. Yes. It actually has to be experiencing it. So I'm just struck by Bonhoeffer's insight. And then, you know, we could say that contemporary neuroscience is simply articulating the same thing of this idea of being adhered to someone. And I think about how your is the foundation of attachment. And then the question is, what is the quality of, of personhood of the person to whom we're adhering? Because when we are seeking to adhere to someone who's chaotic or violent or um, cold and withdrawn, all kinds of things happen. So that we are being invited to adhere ourselves to the truly human one, to Jesus of Nazareth, through the Spirit and then through his people. You know, I was thinking about how you said we we are Dallas invites us to consider that our current circumstances are the exact and excellent, like, um, there could be no more excellent context for our adhering and transformation, e.g. discipleship, than our current circumstances. And the image that came to me was that the orchard of our discipleship is laden with the fruit of our current circumstances, challenges and pleasures both. So I just want to share a story, Morg, of um, recently, um, over the last couple of weeks, I've had, um, I've noticed some feelings inside myself that I have not been, I haven't been comfortable with. There are some feelings of, um, sort of resentment and um, confusion in, a, in um, a relationship. And in, in my definition of salvation growing up was, you know, the problem in the world was me and my being like some being intrinsically misprinted or flawed or something awful about me. And so the solution was to try to kind of 
literally put myself through some sort of filtration system so that what came out at the end was lovable and worthy of existence. And so I notice for myself when I have feelings inside myself that don't feel very lovable, that don't feel um, positive, that it's a challenge for me to face those and to admit them to myself or to others. Jesus has brought me so far in this because it's been essential for me to receive secure attachment is to be seen and known in everything I am and everything I'm not, everything that is lovely and everything that is quote-unquote unlovely, and to find myself, as the psalmist says, surprised to be loved. So here I am feeling kind of unlovely things and finding myself in my spirit withdrawing from Christ and watching him come to me, Morgan. And this is where it's like, I think when Paul says, I resolve to know nothing but Christ crucified, if we think of what what is Paul saying? Why is it Christ crucified? And what does that have to do with attachment? And this idea that Jesus took the initiative to come to each human to say, I hold nothing against you. Sherry, the kingdom is yours. The kingdom is yours. Come follow me. And here I am kind of noticing in my inner being this protest of when I feel unlovely, uncomfortable feelings, I want to, my old definition of salvation kicks in and I basically, you know, kind of isolate myself and try to filtrate, filter myself. And Jesus coming to me, Christ crucified, he could, if he were a different kind of God, say, yep, share with those kinds of feelings, like you were, um, I, I reject you. <laughs> like, But instead, Christ crucified while I was yet a sinner, while I was still in rebellion, Christ died for me, reconciling me to himself, has chosen to stand in front of me, look at me clear-eyed and say, my love, the kingdom of heaven is yours. And I'm protesting, being like, no, don't you see what's inside my heart? And he goes, share, the kingdom of heaven is yours. Follow me. And so he's repairing my attachment through the through seeing me in in these places that to me are unlovely and uncomfortable to admit. And I just I just was driving down the interstate talking to him about this and just tears streaming down my face because he just kept insisting where I wanted to run away from his presence. And he's like, share, the kingdom of heaven is yours. Now, he's not saying that, therefore, you know, I get to kind of harbor and indulge all of these feelings. He's saying, come to me. Take my yoke of attachment upon you. Learn from me the heart of the Father, the reality of the kingdom, this upside-down kingdom, and let me transform you. But the transformation is the fruit of the unconditional love um, and acceptance and and belonging. Um, so anyways, I can just, it's so ongoing, I guess, is what I'm thinking, is that this process of being interrupted in my own self-saving receiving the radicalness of Christ crucified, a God who moves toward me, who initiates a relationship with me before I have even begun to turn toward him, stands in front of me, offering me the kingdom again, um, is, is to me, it's, it's, I'm just so um, moved by Christ crucified and what that means for my experience of attachment. In our remaining time, in light of that, that by way of the big idea, I want to name five specific 
kind of realities, subtext in this idea of discipleship as the epicenter of our salvation and our repairing secure attachment. Uh, So I'd love to just put these ideas in front of you and get your brief response on how you are relating to them. One in, in specific, you know, we're, we're learning Isaiah 44, no one stops to think. We need to understand the times, discern the times in which we're in, the water in which we swim. One of the realities of discipleship that's essential to participate in is it is personal, but it was first meant to be communal, that we live in an age of hyper individualism. We live in a culture that assumes individual, individual even salvation before we even consider community. But we are communal beings. Our Imago Dei is actually one of community, which is, which is kind of mind-bending. And so even the scriptures, for example, they were first given to humanity to experience in community. And so can you riff on that of like, what is the dimension that um, expands in depth and breadth for you in discipleship as a communal reality, not just this individual way of being in the world. Totally. And this is something Mark, you and I so appreciate about Bible Project is how often they stress, you know, again, the you, because it's challenging in our um, English Bible translations, it looks like you singular. And because I am steeped in hyper-individualism, when I read, for example, in Ephesians about my identity, quote unquote, the you, I am thinking of me, Sherry, so often the you is you all, your community, mm-hmm. your, your um, you know, um, outpost of the kingdom. These are things are happening to you all, and this is who you all are. So it is impressive to me how my lens of hyper-individualism, the water in which I have swum and I have propagated for myself, just forms me and how much I'm needing God to continually interrupt it. So... I think what I noticed for me, for example, is that practice of, just as I was describing, that practice of letting Jesus be seen, see me, noticing how uncomfortable it is for me to be seen in the parts of me that are less lovely, less, you know, the unfinished places, that same process of, in community, of needing to find a, a few people with whom we can be seen and experience person to person the offer of he, in the kingdom of God is yours right mm-hmm. here, share. And whether that's with you, Morgan, my marriage and risking letting you see some parts of me that I'm ashamed of or whether with my um, closest allies of heart and heaven. So I, I think about the, the, the whole community and if you, you know, the community is going to be constantly upgraded together as each person is toggling between de- experiencing deeper, you know, attachment with Jesus than risking more um, transparency in a relationship and then that corrective emotional experience, quote unquote, of being seen. Um, Like you said, Morgan, like you were taught salvation is to be nice to everyone, never make an enemy, never make someone uncomfortable, never disappoint their expectations. And for you to practice letting letting your closest friends and allies see you, experience being loved, you know, then you're going to have a body anchor for your attachment to God. And so I, I really do appreciate how it is truly inseparable. And if I don't have other humans to help me experience Jesus' upside-down kingdom and experience the surprise of being loved, 
then my attachment to God is going to be much um, more, you know, just just almost like a, you, I, I want to say impossible, but I don't want to, God, with God, all things are possible. So I don't want to say, use that word, but I'm just saying it, it makes sense to me by, because of the creatures we are, like you said, we image, we bear image in, we bear God's images as in community, that um, community is essential. And again, that doesn't mean you have to be intimate with a large group of people, but just your outpost of the kingdom working together to um, deepen your kingdom citizenship. As I approach this idea, what the question I'm asking myself is how do I move from this individual pool of thinking and approaching discipleship to a communal one? And just a real practical example, we went to Santa Fe to celebrate our anniversary. And I'm always immersing myself in some book or some story but I was very intentional to like invite you into one, right? Where we listen to um, an audio biography and there are things that God's speaking in my life through it. But when we did it together, you drew out dimensions and aspects of things that I didn't see, I didn't notice that really helped me feast on what God was bringing through that book. And so it expanded exponentially what God was able to do in my soul as a man through the story of another man. So it's just a real practical example of I'm constantly thinking, how do I move from a personal experience to a communal one and what's happening in a book or the scriptures? So number two, we talk about this term of the cost of non-discipleship because we are always being discipled, but if we're not being discipled by Christ, there is non-discipleship that's a reality in which we find ourselves. Reflect on that. Yeah. <clears throat> well, I think about, for example, um, the impact of our survival strategies or salvation strategies that we learned that, again, maybe at a time that was the best we could. I think about Daddy-O, like, thank God for order and discipline for him. Um, but when our survival strategies no longer are working to support intimate relationship or, you know, are, are, are backfiring. Um, the cost of non-discipleship is, you know, it, it, it has all kinds of consequences for, from relational um, damage, like damage in our own bodies, damage to our society. You know, we're, we're acting out survival strategies that end up bringing harm to others um, on a societal level. So it's the cost of non-discipleship is, is real, not just for us, but Gosh, for other people, sheesh, tumbling. The next idea, sort of the subtext of recovering discipleship as secure attachment is that the process is the point. And this is so important, particularly in a, for masculine initiation, because we are so goal-driven. We are so finish line-oriented. We are so um, enmeshed in outcomes. But the reality is, in the kingdom of God, our destination and our reward is certain, right? Revelation says, your reward is with me. One day, we will come to the end of our discipleship, and we will find ourselves in fully restored humanity. We will be ruling with Christ as kings and queens. And friends, what's so important 
in this revelation sort of working its way in me is it dignifies process. It allows me to become unhinged with future oriented, with tomorrow, to actually allow the sacredness of the moment to be the point. The, the fourth subtext on this, and we got in this in beautiful conversation with Aaron and Rich in uh, episode 103 on work and repairing the sacred secular divide. And what Wendell Berry names recovers really that's so essential is there are not sacred and secular things. There are only sacred and desecrated things. And Sherry, what's so important for me as I recover this worldview of discipleship, everything in creation has the opportunity to become sacred. And I see things different. There's a restoring of dignity. There's a restoring of everything being infused with God's life, God's presence, and God's kingdom. So there's no small things. There's only sacred and desecrated. And so how do I begin to see everything in my life as contributing to that very particular way of God fathering us into attachment through discipleship. Mm -hmm. What do you think about that? Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, it's just stunning, Morgan, that uh, the the recovery of um, God's commitment and cherishing of all of creation. As humans, we were made to love and be loved, know and be known, but we were made to work, you know, not for our worthiness, but for to bring creation forward, to take the raw materials of creation and, and, and create something that had not previously existed, our unique contribution to God's cosmos. So um, I, I just think it's, and we were obviously created to play as well. Point being that, that there's no separation between the sacred and the mundane. It's rather the desecrated and the sacred. However, I do think it's important to say, you're right, uh, there's no sacred or mundane things, but there are sacred and secular ideas. And so mm -hmm. you have to separate. Um, and sometimes are those secular ideas break into replace sacred ideas in even someone's um, faith configuration. So I think we have to be honest, of course, no, there's no secular um, activities per se, but there are secular ideas. Can you give just one brief example of a secular idea because I, I hear what you're saying, but I don't know what to do with it. Sure, sure. So one secular idea, for example, we could suggest is kind of the, the gospel of consumerism of the problem is I'm empty and the solution is I need identity. Well, the problem is I'm empty and I have no identity. And the solution is achieve identity and pleasure through consumption. <clears throat> and so we... You know, we we put expend a lot of effort into what something you know that it now has um, value that it that doesn't correspond with its actual like physical value. It has value because of the way it configures into our consumerist secular idea. But that so the the shoes that I buy in and of themselves are sacred. They are the product of someone's work. You know, this is a sacred mm -hmm. thing. But the secular, if I might say. The, the competition between the or the rivalry between a secular mi 
a secular mindset, e.g. the consumerist part of that, and a sacred mindset competing to name what those shoes mean is a whole nother. So the shoes are, are sacred. They're part of God's creation. But what meaning gets attached to them depends on my um, depends on my worldview. And my worldview, as Sherry Snyder, is still a mix of secular and sacred. Mm-hmm. And I have a long way to go. I have consumerism in me in ways I don't even realize. And I've been wanting since I was 22 to reject it. So I'm 45. It's <laughs> It's been a long process and I'm still in it. So I guess all that to say is that that's what I mean is we do have to, I think the re, the intention to separate the sec, to um, protest against a, sec, a religious saying that's secular and doesn't matter and this is sacred and does, we can protest that. But we have to be cunning and say, now we also have to be careful to say, but there are secular ideas that are different from sacred ideas. Yeah, it's really good. I mean, what I hear in that is we have been discipled in a gospel of consumerism. And so as we come to Christ in increasing measure, we have to look for that, those sort of gospels that have worked their way in our being and repent and repair so that that secure attachment that we have made to consumerism, for example, gets attached back into God, and it frees those things like a pair of shoes to become sacred. Yes. Kind of a fifth and final subtext for this conversation today, and Cher, we've talked a lot about this and we borrowed it from Atomic Habits, but in this realm of process being the point and consenting that all of life is the context for our initiation, our discipleship, this phrase of consistency over intensity. We were just talking about workouts. Just showing up is the victory. They're marginal at best. It's good enough. But there's this shift over time in my discipleship where I used to sort of resent that and there would be almost some self-hatred of why aren't I trying harder? Why aren't I doing more? To now I'm actually celebrating of the secret weapon of the things I love, like archery hunting, is in the off-season training. It's the slow and steady consistency of just showing up just doing something of kind of getting a C, of putting in the miles, putting in the time so that when I'm called upon in the moment of instinctual necessity, I am ready for anything anywhere. Over intensity, where that thing of it's never enough. So consistency over intensity. Atomic Habits has struck onto an aspect of the kingdom here. I mean, this is, I remember when um, I first was, you know, or, or came across the um, research around the power of walking. It's something like 20 minutes, three times a week, like has demonstrable effect mm-hmm. on people's health. Like 20 minutes, three times a week. Right. And in my head, so, and, and that is demonstrable. I was like, Jesus, your kingdom, it's such a much lighter yoke than what I expect. Yes. I expect if you want demonstrable results, baby, you got to get out there for an hour. Absolutely. You got to kick it. And so I just, this has been one of those things where um, I have needed to have my worldview. My worldview has been so convinced of intensity um, that have it be reframed around consistency. And then it's that idea like every single time, whether it's like we're we're sowing seed for the future, even if it feels like I'm just doing something really, you know, like that from my um, 
my untransformed worldview is like, what a waste of time, girlfriend. Like, at least, like, pick up the pace or something. Mm -hmm. But that um, kind of with a sparkle in my newly forming kingdom eyes, like, guess what? Maybe 20 minutes of a walk. It's, it's like all it takes. So what, whatever that is, if that's engaging with your kids when you're so tired and you're like, oh, shoot, I can't, like, play with them for an hour. But maybe I can sit down and be silly for three minutes. Like, it's just so so exciting to be curious about Jesus's kingdom of consistency and small, tiny, little, like atomic size choices um, in place of the kind of leering mockery of it has to be intense to be effective. Yeah, friends, I chose this sort of subtext to kind of conclude on this consistency over intensity because it really brings us back full circle to to the original idea that we were trying to communicate. Discipleship is not something we need to do more of. It's not something we need to add to our life. It's not something we need to try harder with. It's meant to be the interpretive grid. It's meant to be the way in which we see and experience everything we are doing in our ordinary life, moment by moment, and by day and by decade. And babe, I just want to, I just think it's like, I really appreciate how you point out we're always being discipled. I am being discipled by what I turn on, like what I'm going to listen to on my drive up to the kids' school. Like I'm always being discipled. And so just to be conscientious of that and say, therefore, what what do I want the bouquet, if you will, of discipleship to be for me? Um, and And being responsible about that. And I just think, wow, it's a big, big, big shift for me if I am being discipled. The question is by whom, by what, unto what, um, what, what definition of the problem and what definition of the solution. So friends, I think we'll leave you with that idea. As you take this podcast into your day and into your week and even into this final 90-second meditation, this question to just step back and first ask, what if discipleship is intrinsically woven into salvation? What if they were inseparable? What if the point was repairing secure attachment? And what if the process was actually the gold? The question for you today is what and who has discipled you, informed you into the person you have found yourself being today? And what do you think about that? Let's linger for 90 seconds. Share, thanks for joining me and friends all around the globe. Thank you for risking, consenting to masculine initiation. Your father is pursuing you. The yoke is easy. The burden is light. You are on time and you are in good hands. Thank you.